0: Well, the big difference between Meralco and PLDT uh, is that Meralco is, to this day, a yes. monopoly. And it has only one product, electricity. So the first thing that, that I thought should be done by a company of this nature is to be customer-centric. That, for me, is the singular, most important aspect of Meralco that should be changed. The yeah. monopoly part is something that has to be downplayed. Uh, You must be like any other company. You have customers and and, and the heart of the company actually should be the customers, right?
1: Hi guys, this is Molek and welcome to the Future Proof Leader Podcast. Today I sat down with a dear friend and a leader I respect deeply, the president and CEO of Miralco, Ray Espinosa. After topping the bar exam in 1982, Ray has built an illustrious career. Over the years, he has been a partner at one of the most respected law firms in the country, a member of the PLDT board for over two decades, president and CEOs of companies such as EPLDT and MediaQuest. In this episode, Ray shares his insights on a variety of topics, from what it takes to top the bar exam, to how he's creating a greener Miralco in the years to come. But we started the conversation talking about his high school days when he practically lived on the street and made extra money by washing jeepneys and taxi caps. Enjoy.
0: So, Ray, welcome to the podcast. Ah, well, well, thank you, Malik. Thank you very much. It's, it's indeed a, a rare privilege and, and a pleasure to be in your podcast. It's my first time, actually, to do this, so, so it's quite uh, thrilling for me. Thank you.
1: Of course, and it's a pleasure is all mine, and I'm glad that your podcast debut is with me. Um, now, uh, Ray, I know a lot of people know you in the country as one of the most astute legal minds. Uh, You're also known for a variety of roles that you have played at PLDT and now as the president and CEO of Miralco. But most people may not know about your humble beginning and the fact that uh, when you were, during your high school years, were making extra money by washing jeepneys and taxicabs.
0: So tell us about that, Time of your life, right? Well, well, it's something that uh, not a lot of people are aware. Uh, I, I grew up uh, mainly in the streets, uh, Malik. So I'm a street uh, street kid, as you would call it. I had had a lot of fun with, with uh, during those days, but uh, I, I we we all I needed also to make sure that uh, I could go through high school uh, and complete my high school degree, and that was a point in time when the family was. Uh, a bit challenged financially and then to help basically put myself through through high school i had to do what the most of the street kids were doing then which is to wash uh, jeepneys and then taxicabs and i do that during the weekends even during weekdays uh, when i came back from 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 school so so to earn uh you know several pesos to keep myself uh, uh, in school so that went on for for four years of my high school life and uh, until i Basically, I uh, was able to get through college and then uh, in law school, uh, obviously. Life was very tough and rough.
1: I know, and not many people would be able to relate to that because they have seen you in positions of power in a variety of companies within PLDD Group. What would be interesting for us is uh, if you can connect the dots for us from going through that humble beginning to then topping the bar exam in 1982.
0: My father was actually a lawyer, but you know, in, in the later stages of his life, he had some uh, health issues. So uh, it it was something that was uh, the something that I grew up in, and and mm-hmm. you know, I loved to see the law books and everything, and how he would research, do his legal papers, you know, type his uh, pleadings, etc. So yes, I I started getting uh, involved in his work. Uh, I did some. Bits and pieces of research for him, and that made me understand what that entire subject matter was all about. So, so I told my dad, well, I want to be a lawyer when I, I uh, uh, grow up. He said, well, you know, son, <laughs> and and that was a time of martial law. So there was, uh, yeah. he said, well, I don't think uh, it's going to be a good idea. But uh, you know, I I persisted, and then there the, here we are, you know.
1: What what did he want you to become? Uh, did he want he his wants- son to become a doctor or exactly? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I said you know you're better off being a doctor because at least uh, you don't have to go to go through these uh, problems that the lawyers are having with martial law courts could be closed anytime et cetera. So I did uh, indulge him. So my my college degree was actually uh, a bachelor's of science in general, which you say repertory medical uh, medicine uh, degree in, in the University of San Tomas. But uh, the good thing is I couldn't get myself into med school. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my, my grades were just a bit low to make it to the cut for medical school. And uh, that cost me a year of schooling. So I stopped for a year because I couldn't get in. And when I reapplied the following year, I said, well, I'll apply with the same schools again, try my luck. Uh, but this time, I'm going to apply for law. And I did apply for law school in two schools, Ateneo and USD, which is where I graduated uh, for high school and college. And uh, true enough, I again, I was rejected by the medical schools, but I passed uh, the exam in Ateneo. So when I uh, was given the news that I passed, I readily accepted it and signed up for Law School in. I didn't wait for the results of the other school, which is also favorable. So I had set my 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 eyes and and then my and my determination to to finish law,
1: yeah, maybe your heart was not into medicine, right? I mean, it's one of those things where your parents may want you to become a doctor, but if you don't want yeah. to become a doctor, nobody can force you to do that. Yes. Uh, it's
0: one of those things, uh, really, but so i'm'm I'm, I'm glad uh, that's why I said, you know, it was serendipitous that I was not accepted in, in medical school. So.
1: so you got into Ateneo Law School. Did you ever aspire to top the bar exam? I mean, was that part of your consciousness?
0: But no, I no uh, aspirations at all to top the bar exams. Uh, my main objective was to finish uh, law school and to, to make the, the, the cut in grades because I, I was on a scholarship in law school. Oh, okay. I had to maintain a certain grade point uh, every semester so that was my only goal to keep to keep my grades uh, up there so I can I can get scholarship every semester so yeah and and uh, a lot of reading a lot of hard work uh, long hours at the library that's what it was all about passing law school and eventually passing the bar
1: and w- were you surprised when uh, the results came out and your name was at that very top
0: no, yes, I was I was very surprised. I was working then already. I, I was working in Sisip because they, they take in a fresh uh, bar examinees even before they get the results. So I was working uh already in Sisip at that time. So yes, it was very surprising that the the, the eve before the results were released, I, I packed my things already. I you know, can never be sure <laughs> if if you count or So I put them all in a box and brought them home after leave. Yeah, because, well, if if you fail, you have to get out of uh, obsessive. And then um, I slept through the night. And uh, very early in the morning, one of my classmates who lived nearby our place, uh, I think it was even, he he was in our place around the 7 in the morning, was knocking to break the news. And he broke the news to my mom. And, and obviously, my mom couldn't believe it. And then uh, me from my TV, I said, really? <laughs> How could that be? <laughs> so I headed off and went and went, uh, and went uh, back to the office with my stuff again. <laughs> and did, did you
1: ask for a pay raise right after that? It's like, hey, I'm the no, bar no, topper.
0: No no, you... <laughs> no, no pay raise. But uh, by that time, all, apparently, the, the, the entire firm knew the results that night. So mm-hmm. when I entered my room, I mean, there were so many, you know, notes, et cetera, pasted on the wall, uh, all of that stuff. So, yeah, there was a lot of fun there. So that, that was a, That's that was a huge yes. moment in, in my professional life.
1: And I'm sure, uh, Ray, a lot of people come to you and ask for advice. I know either they are preparing for the bar exams or their kids are
0: preparing for the bar exams. What do you tell them? Well, my only recipe in MOLIC was really hard work. So so really study a lot and, and uh, do your homework, long hours. That, that's it. I mean, that, that that was at least my formula. Uh, others may have a different one. Maybe they, they, they're able to, to strike a, a balance between life and studies. During my time, it wasn't like that. I mean, we have to be single-minded. That was my only objective was to, to get through law school and to pass the bar i mean failure was not an option for me because you know where would yeah. i be if i failed again so sure
1: sure and uh, does that mean uh, no partying during those years uh, no. Uh, no. and then you made it up after your exam results came yeah. out
0: <laughs> I, I had a lot of that in in, in college <laughs> oh there we go <laughs> that's why my my grades were well uh, not high enough for medical school so <laughs> so after that you
1: went to university of michigan and you got your master's in law, right? Yes, yes. Uh,
0: I applied for a scholarship. There's a, there's a special scholarship available only to Filipinos. It's called the Clyde Alton DeWitt Scholarship Fund. That was established by a, a, an American lawyer, Clyde Alton DeWitt, who had a huge law firm in the Philippines called DeWitt & Perkins, which was the precursor of the law firm of Senator Juan Ponce Enrile, actually. Oh, okay. So he had a very successful practice in the Philippines. So he put up this foundation uh, and endowed it with enough funds uh, to provide scholarships to the University of Michigan for uh, Master of Laws degrees. So, so a lot of a lot of Filipinos go there. I was lucky at that time. Uh, I think the fund was was quite rich at the time. So they had two full scholars. Mm -hmm. One from from Ateneo and one from uh, the University of the Philippines. So our scholarship was uh, both for tuition and and living expenses. So everything was covered except the plane fare.
1: And did you ever think about working in the U.S.? Did you ever think about pursuing a career in that part of the world?
0: uh, I did. Uh, After I finished my LLM course, I worked for a year in Washington, D.C. in a law firm, Called Covington and Burling, it, it's, it was the largest law firm in Washington D.C. at that time. So they have a, they had a lawyer from abroad program, which they still have today. So they take in uh, foreign attorneys uh, into this one-year program, and so you, you you basically are an associate of the firm, and, sure. and so you, you basically get the same work as they do. And it it was a, it was a great experience actually. Mm-hmm. What what brought you back to the Philippines? Well, uh, I was I was in, I was employed by SISIP already, so I had the two okay. years of actual and and I thought you know I I had a good career in SISIP. And uh, when I left SISIP uh, to study and to work, I was already a senior associate at that time. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, three more years I could make it a partner. So I said, well, that's not a bad uh, result. So I decided to come back. Plus, my family also wanted to to stay in the Philippines. Uh, maybe.
1: So you you came back and uh, years later, you became a partner, I think, two, three years Mm -hmm. later. Uh, But your world really changed in uh, around 1998 when you met with MVP and you helped him and First Pacific essentially acquire a part of PLDT. How was that experience?
0: Well, that was quite a story because uh, CSIP was not the law firm of, of First Pacific in the Philippines. So the the law firm, the main law firm of First Pacific was actually the Picasso law office. I mean, but I think they decided that they needed another firm Mm. because the acquisition was very sensitive. They wanted to keep it very discreet uh, initially. And uh, they thought that if we were to use our lawyers, even if we were in the background, I mean, uh, things could leak out, so so uh, being discreet uh, was very important in the strategy of the acquisition, so they said they decided uh, well we, we need to hire a different law firm in the Philippines, and they consulted a, a law firm in Hong Kong that they had been using also for the longest time, and the managing partner there happened to be someone that I worked with for a long time uh, in many of the banking and finance uh, deals that we were doing there i I was also practicing banking finance and so i got a call from him and said hey ray uh you know we have a client one of our major clients here in hong kong and they they have a major acquisition in the philippines and uh if you'd be interested to 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 handle this deal uh if you could clear uh, your firm for conflict and see whether you know uh, this area, so you have any conflict in this area. So I did, went through the motion, so there was no conflict of interest uh, with any other client. So I said, yes, I think uh, we have no conflict, and uh, we, we can. I can handle the case, the firm can represent. The client said, good, good. And then a week after, he sends me a list of questionnaires. <laughs> I go, like, oh, well, okay, well, it's like I said, I told John Pedersen, and wow, this a? this looks like a bar exam question. <laughs> 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 Basically, to test, uh, you know how how knowledgeable uh, the firm was and I was when it came to to mergers and acquisitions. So that that that, that was not difficult to do. So sent the answers to the questionnaire. Uh, I didn't hear from John Pedersen for for a while, so I thought that was a you know be probably the pan out, etc. So after two months, around July of 1998. I got a phone call again from him. He said, "Hey Ray, you know that that client that I was referring to you? So yeah, they they decided to to hire you, and uh, you have a meeting today. The managing director <laughs> of First Pacific is in Manila, and and wants to meet with you." I said, "As in today? Yeah, he's in in uh, exactly in near your office. Their office is in is in the Metro Pacific building." I said, "Oh, in Rufino Towers." So I said, "Yeah, yeah." So he revealed who the client was, et cetera. So I went there. Uh, wow, it, the room was full of, of foreigners and, and Filipinos all so dressed in their uh, blue suits, et cetera. So I said, <laughs> this, must be the, this must be the real meeting. And then MVP comes out. Uh-huh. Uh, he was very young then. <laughs> And uh, in his suspender, so I said, wow, this must be the top guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which so, he is. So he was. So he was. And then he gave me, then he briefed everybody that who the target shareholders would be. And he said, well, we, we need to commence negotiation right away. So we would negotiate with four main shareholders at that time. And he wanted the negotiation to take place almost uh, contemporaneously, not one after the other, because we had to achieve a, a, a comprehensive closing and then buy out uh, all, all of them. So, yeah. And, and we did that in, uh, in, in a span of four months.
1: Wow. So you must have really impressed the man in the sub- suspenders because uh, he invited you to be one of the board of directors uh, on yes, MDT yes. right uh, after acquisition, right?
0: Well, he was also shorthanded, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think also because because of the fact that, you know, the way MVP worked at that time. I mean, this guy had a lot of energy, I tell you. Long hours, I mean, way past uh, 12 midnight. But the thing about us in CSIF, we are, you know, as associates, we are trained to be workhorses. Yes. So this prompt work is, is nothing new to us. I mean, I... I I'd be able to work for 48 hours straight without sleep. Wow. Uh, finished meal. So so it wasn't difficult for there's no adjustment at all to his work schedule. So we would be we would be negotiating with several selling shareholders uh during the daytime. In the evening, uh we would go repair back to the office and, and then you know discuss how we would address the the issues and then I would basically revise all of those documents overnight. I didn't have. I didn't use an associate anymore because the time was of the essence. So yeah, you know, negotiate the day before, produce the document the next day, go to negotiations again. So it, it was that sort of drill. And and I, I guess he said, I mean, this guy is a, this guy is a horse. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's just like me. I think I can trust yeah. this guy. <laughs>
0: so, so maybe we need this guy. Yeah. No, that's amazing. uh, Now,
1: as a, you were an outsider advising MVP and for specific at that time, in the beginning, uh, you were an external counsel. Did you buy into the merits of this particular acquisition, or you were also wondering, my God, you know, they are paying $750 million for this stake in PLDT. Does it make sense?
0: You know, I thought it made sense because you know at that time PLDT wasn't really that strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was doing not doing very well as well, and and uh, there was a lot of pressure already on PLDT to, to, to improve its services, to to, to spend more capex, uh, and all of that stuff. So so I thought that well, if 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 uh, MVP is as good as you know what's written about him, he probably is the guy who can. Change and, and transform LDT for, for the better, and, and that and that was his uh, spiel mainly when when we met. He said, you know, it's a target. Yes, now is the time to buy a company like this because uh, you're not buying very high, even if it was that. I mean, it was a huge amount of money at that time. He says, but you know, he says, in my view, this company is worth a lot more mm-hmm. if we're able to transform and change, etc. Yeah, so and he yeah, been right. Yeah, he's been right uh, from day one.
1: Uh, So right after uh, he invited you to become one of the directors, two years later, he actually asked you to join him as an executive. And here you were enjoying your life as a partner at CC, one of the best law firms to work for. Was that a difficult transition for you to go from the law firm side to the client side?
0: Well, 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 not really well first first of all, my practice in CSIP was uh, very much commercial, corporate and business law, and a lot of banking and finance and mergers and acquisitions so so I, I did a lot of work for our clients and, and uh, got to know exactly was exposed to how they uh, were thinking, how they strategized and uh, and how they managed their companies generally. Uh, but the other side. The other thing is, in, in the case of PLDT, while I was a partner, still, in, in, even after I I, I was uh, I became a board member of PLDT, I was doing almost 100% of my work was now PLDT. Wow! And I was spending every day in PLDT because MVP wanted to change PLDT <laughs> rapidly, and so there were a lot of things uh, that had to be done. So, yeah, so every day. I was in PLDT and I was working with him during the weekends. And when I say weekends, it's Saturday and Sunday. Wow. As in literally Saturday and Sunday, we would work together in the conference room, of in in the main boardroom of PLDT. That would be our workplace with MVP. And and that went on for two years. Wow. So I guess he decided, well, if this guy is is trying to do a lot more work for us, uh, probably cost us uh you know a lot less if we hired him <laughs> <laughs> Pay spend break because you know you're paying me like uh you know like a meter the meter you know. keeps running and and yeah i mean they would that probably is. look at their legal bills and say wow i mean amount of billing from this guy <laughs> <laughs> we might
1: as, well hire him. <laughs> yeah, might as well hire him and put him on our payroll what, what was the what do you remember as the hardest part about that initial transformation? Because, you know, you took over PLDD from the old guards and you had to very quickly transform it based on what MVP wanted the team to do. When you look back at that time, what was the hardest part of that transformation?
0: Uh, when, when you take control of, of a very old and storied institution, uh, you realize obviously that uh, the organization is very set in their ways right and introducing change is going to be very difficult uh, culture changes are so difficult to implement from the top down to the organization and and pldt was like that I mean a very old institution very set in their ways and and it was a monopoly business at that time or or It had a long history of a monopoly operation. So there was uh, not a lot of interest in customer service and customer satisfaction. I mean, if you're the only service provider in town, I mean, what's your incentive, right? Mm -hmm. I guess that was thinking. And so to be able to achieve this transformation of making the company more customer-centric, and uh, adopt new technologies, uh, et cetera. So we, we we needed, it was like pulling teeth. And, and you had to change uh, some people along the way uh, for you to make inroads. Uh, but even then, the organization was so heavy in terms of uh, employees. I mean, the, the, the number of employees it had then, which is around 17,000, could not be justified with its revenues. Yes. Uh, so, so there was a lot of thought, and and uh, the first thing that we had to do really was to to strike a balance between the the, the workforce count and and uh, the business of the company. So that that was the most difficult, I'd say, transition that we had to undertake, and we had to undertake it quickly mm-hmm. to be able to bring down the count to around ten thousand. People or some ten thousand. It, it was it was very difficult. We had to devise a, a very good, uh, you know, retirement program and and uh, manpower reduction program uh, that would meet obviously the requirements of the law and the regulations at that time. But uh, but we succeeded. Yes, and that started the the, the transformation of field. We Brought in more people, newer newer people, uh, younger people and people with a lot of experience in general management
1: you have played quite a few different roles within the group uh, mvp has clearly maximized and optimized what ray can do for the group uh, you have been their legal counsel you have been uh, you know helping them with uh, government and regulatory approvals you have been uh, his senior advisor um, you have also uh, been leading organizations like EPLDT and uh, MediaQuest. I mean, we'll get to Miralko in a second, but is there a part of your work that you enjoyed the most uh, that you are so natural at? And it's like, please leave me alone. I, I can do this 24 seven.
0: Well, uh, yes, there are certain areas that I really uh, excel very well, I would say it in mergers and acquisitions. I mean, that's, that's my backwater. I mean, I can do that day and night, every day. It's not. It's it's, it's it's always been very interesting to me. The other the other area is uh, strategizing how to navigate the regulatory waters. Uh, that 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 is very interesting and challenging, as you know, in the Philippines. Yeah. And I think one one thing that I've managed to be able to do is steer PLDT through these regulatory waters for the last I don't know since 1998, and and managed to. To avoid, uh, you know, a lot of really damaging issues that could have arisen uh, in all of those years. And then, uh, more recently, uh, I've been involved in in business transformation, mm-hmm. which is another exciting area. So very so exciting. Working with the uh, business transformation office of PLDT, I was part of the team that uh, you know uh, negotiated a. Huge uh, transformation uh, deal with Amdocs, who is our transformation service provider, and led the, you know work with them, strategize how the transformation would have to be done, and negotiated the transformation contract and uh, the related uh, technical services agreement. So th- that that was really super exciting for me because it, it it really made you understand what this new world order of technology and digital. Digitalization is all about automation, AI. Being exposed to all of that, very enriching for me. And
1: and how much of that have you brought with you to Miralco? Uh, You know, speaking of transformation, uh, you took over as the president and CEO of Miralco two and a half years ago, roughly. And I'm sure this is something that is very close to your heart as well. How do you transform? a 118-year-old organization, older than PLDT, actually, right? Yes. Um, and h- how are you going about that experience?
0: Well, the, the, the big difference between Meralco and uh, PLDT uh, is that Meralco is, to this day, a yes. monopoly. Mm-hmm. And it has only one product, electricity. Yes. No competitor within our franchise area, right? Mm-hmm. So... The first thing that, that I thought should be done by a company uh, of this nature is to be customer-centric. Mm-hmm. I mean, that for me is the singular, most important aspect of Meralco that should be changed. So from there, I helped devise and put together a customer-centricity transformation program for Meralco, which we started in 2019. In, in, in terms of strategizing how that would be, I hired a, a very good uh, head of IT. Uh, got him from Smart. <laughs> SMART. <laughs> You're poaching SMART. from Smart. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, guys like this are, are very rare. Mm-hmm. And and together we put it uh, put together the plan, presented it to our mancom, got the buy-in from the management committee. And then we rolled it out. And I, I am really very proud of this uh, transformation program. We have we have achieved so much, learning a lot uh, from from the PLD transformation, where Rocky Bacani was also involved. So mm-hmm. having that insight, having all of that learning, and then you know putting it uh, into great use uh, allowed us to actually achieve uh, transformational changes, quite a number of transformational changes, in a span of six to eight months.
1: What would that mean for your customers and your employees? How would they see this transformation manifest in their lives? What would change for them?
0: The change really is we've uh, we've significantly enhanced and improved the front-end part of the company, the customer-facing part, has changed uh, dramatically. Mm -hmm. So we have enabled uh, our representatives with tools, uh, digital tools and automated tools and uh, giving them a lot of data that they can see and analyze and be able to become more responsive to inquiries and questions and concerns of customers. We opened the uh, many channels, uh, digital channels uh, social media channels so that we can interact with our customers in in the, whatever channel uh, they would prefer. and and that has earned braces from our customer and uh, you know at the height of the lockdown, there were a million, more than a million, uh, complaints, concerns uh, pending before the customer care group of of uh, It was so immense that uh, that we that we were being badmouthed by by customers left and right, and we were hied off to, to Congress, etc. And and you know the only way to handle that thing is to come up quickly with a program that would address. Yeah. Is more than 1 million in pending uh, concerns, inquiries, and complaints. Mm -hmm. So, the first thing you learn uh, when when, learning from PLDTs, you have to brute force this thing. So, uh, well, learning from from my limited experience in the call center and BPO, uh, Molik, of which you are an expert. (laughs) uh, So, I hired uh, 2,500 FTEs. them on the job, trained them, and then just kept hammering at those issues, etc. And then uh, hired a guy, uh, also an ex PLDT guy uh, who had worked for me in EPLDT, and we put together the the entire customer care uh, group and journey, and opened uh, the and basically devised the, the multi-channel uh, strategy. And you know, in in Four, five months, we, we addressed more than one million backlog of, of complaints and issues.
1: That's amazing. That's quite and, fast. I mean, that, that's... And, uh,
0: uh, brute force can do a lot, uh, right? Well, apart from the 2,500 FTEs that we hired for that purpose, we also trained our own uh, employees from network, from our uh, customer retail service. So, so employees volunteered, actually. To, yeah. to, to man the, to man the computers, man the phones. So we got 1,000 employees who volunteered to do extra work. Mm-hmm. So 2,500 FTs hired from outsourced service providers plus 1,000 of our rank and file people working together. So yeah. So in six oh, months, amazing. we addressed that, brought it down, and, and the next, uh, milestone for the head of our Costa care group was to bring the FTE count down to 250. <laughs> so, 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 That would be quite a Jan- challenge. Yeah, but starting January of hmm. this year, we're down to 250 FTEs. Wow. And our answer rate uh, on voice is 98.7%. All other channels, 100%. If it's Facebook, uh, live chat, email, etc.
1: Speaking of your customers, uh, one of the things that is changing with them is, um, a lot of them are going towards solar energy, renewal and renewable energy for their houses. And I know Miralco has a net metering option for residential as well as businesses. Do you see that as a threat to your business model or you are promoting that?
0: We are we are actually promoting. We have a subsidiary whose only business actually is to to promote, market and sell uh, uh, rooftop solars for for solar uh, for, for homes and and uh, commercial and even industrial customers. So that's what we call it. The company's name is Spectrum.
1: And how how successful is that? Uh, do you see a big uptake in? Solar energy and renewable energy here in the Philippines, or people are still waiting for the prices to go down for the solar panels and the batteries?
0: Well, the prices have come down uh, quite significantly already. So the uptake is there. I mean, year on year, it's increasing. Uh, it, it really requires a lot more information dissemination for people to understand how it works. But yes, uh, it, it is, it is growing, obviously, not by leaps and bounds still. Yes. Uh, because there are constraints, but but uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, customers now are, are transitioning towards uh, solar in their homes and in their businesses, and, and we are we are we are in the forefront of uh, promoting that that uh, transition.
1: And how about uh, the production of electricity? So Miralko, from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is in the business of distributing electricity that was produced somewhere else. Um, how influential are you going upstream and uh, trying to have some influence over how the energy is created to begin with, how the electricity is produced?
0: There are The two ways by which we are able to influence this transition uh, to renewable more renewable energy sources we really. first is in our uh, power sales procurement plan, mm-hmm. which we have to which we have to put together and submit to the Department of energy every year. So that basically tells uh, government and the public exactly what sort of capacity requirements uh, we need over a over over a period of ten years uh, or even fifteen years. and and whether that's baseload, mid-merit, or piquing. We we are influencing the way uh, suppliers uh, participate in in the competitive selection process now, which is the new norm. It used to be a bilateral contract or negotiation with suppliers, but now uh, we source energy or power through public bidding, which is called the compulsory selection process. So we, 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 we indicate in our PSPP uh, energy sources that we would like to, to, to see uh, in the mix, but obviously that is not something that's mandatory because to this day, the law and the regulation prevents a distribution utility yeah. from hard-coding its own fuel mix, which I think is not correct uh, to begin with. So the regulations today requires us to to choose uh, suppliers on the basis of the least cost, and and you must be technology neutral and and fuel neutral. Mm -hmm. So that's why Miracle could have been a great influence in in the speed by which we transition out of fossil-based fuel to renewable sources. If we were given a wider latitude, Mm -hmm. uh, influenced our own mix, which I've been trying to to, to convince the sector of energy to allow the use distribution fields to do, but, but they've not changed the regulations, uh, unfortunately. So on our own, what we've done is, uh, we are allowed to invest in uh, generate power generation. So in 2019, I announced that uh, Miralco is committed to, to develop and invest in at least 1,500 megawatts of renewable energy projects in the next uh, five years accounted from record from 2019. And I also announced that Meralco would also source at least 1,500 megawatts of capacity supply from renewable sources within five years. So that, that's been our, our track. Th- that's on the distribution utility side where we basically buy uh, power for our captive customers. We are also participating in the retail electricity sector or the RES market, where basically customers, uh, depending on how much you consume by way of power, you can buy, you can choose who your generator for power generation company uh, would be. We, are also, we also have a company, uh, we also have a business unit and an affiliate and a, and a subsidiary that participates in that market. So those are the so called contestable customers. So in in that space, we are now uh, acquiring or buying more renewable capacity than fossil fuel-based capacity. So I'm I'm very happy with that. Uh, We're going for solar, we're going for for wind, and uh, we're looking for hydro so uh, we also have a sustainability framework a long-term sustainability framework that that charts basically how we can reduce and decarbonize ourselves and reduce our greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and uh on to 2050 where our goal is to be net zero to be, uh, just like the rest of the world but achieving net zero by 2050 is largely dependent on changes in law and regulation. I mean, mm-hmm. Law and regulation obviously must change. Uh, get out of this uh, least cost. Least cost that means uh, you know uh, coal, for instance, uh, is very very competitive given its pricing, etc. So it, it it's a disadvantage actually for for other renewables that may be a bit more pricey than the marginal cost, uh, the short-term marginal cost of, of coal plants, for instance.
1: So it seems like okay. uh, you're, yeah, you're leading quite a few interesting and impressive initiatives. And you know, for anyone who is thinking that, hey, if you're leading a monopoly, maybe there isn't much to do, but it seems like when I think through all the things that you just narrated now, uh, you have your work cut out for yourself <laughs> over the next 10 years. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah but, but,
0: be... but 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 really, this Miralco experience, Mordecai, I have to say, is again, it's very enriching. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 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 requires you actually to be on your toes. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of reading about the industry the developments in technology uh, and and how utilities around the world are are operating, and and what may influence uh, behaviors in, in in different countries, etc., and how regulators in this country's uh, act and react to their unique settings. so so it's it's a very interesting field actually yeah, and I think yeah. the monopoly part is something that has to be downplayed uh, you yes. must be like any other company you have customers yeah. and 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 the heart of the company actually should be the customers right
1: on that uh, exciting note um, we are at that point uh, podcast uh, ray where i asked some rapid fire questions very quick questions and we'll just go through them are you ready for them
0: sure sure
1: <laughs> so the first one is what's the biggest mistake have you made and what have you learned from it
0: well uh biggest mistake really is uh making uh, business investments with friends i, I think <laughs> it's it, it is tough when, when the business uh, becomes tough Mm-hmm. uh yeah, it's, it's more more often than not the friendships offers
1: what about your biggest fear and if you have had a chance <laughs> to overcome <laughs> yes, Flanking the bar
0: was my biggest fear <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and uh <laughs> how, <laughs> how did you overcome that i mean obviously hard work and uh you know a lot of hard work, a lot of hard worked, a
0: lot of a lot of prayers a
1: lot of prayers. <laughs> Good point. How do you define success in your life?
0: I think for me, success would be defined uh, by the success of my own children. Mm. I think so beautiful. I, I'm Very old school thinking that uh, you know my goal in life actually is, if you have a family, is to make sure that uh, your kids become successful, you know, not yeah. not wealthy, but successful and, yes. and, and that, that that is that is my measure of my own success uh, how about uh,
1: your uh, favorite quotes? any quotes that you leave by that you often refer to uh,
0: there is one uh it, it's it's from a poem by Robert Browning actually but a man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for wow so I, I guess that's that that, that for me, uh, sums up, uh, what I've been doing through, you know, my entire, uh, educational and professional life, which is, uh, trying to do better than my best, uh, yeah. in all of the things that I do, I mean, whether I succeed or not, is a different thing, mm-hmm. but, but that, it has to be, it must come from, from that, uh, from that
1: determination. How about uh, books? Any books that have played a big role in your life?
0: I think the most influential book in my life is a book that was given to me by a friend. It's The Little Prince, actually, hmm. and uh, I, I think it's uh, it's not a scholarly book or anything, but but it says a lot about uh, how to be human mm-hmm. and how to to treat uh, other people, and I think that 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 is very important. In the world uh, today, especially where when the world is tough, and you lose sight of your humanity, yes, I think yes, that yes. book basically puts us in touch with our humanity and humanity uh, in relation to ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, our family, and and uh, and others around us. So yes, I mean, I, I, I mean, I love that book. I I have the book, several versions of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have the movie. So, yeah.
1: The last question, uh, Ray, I have is if you were to write a book about your own life, what would be the title of that book?
0: Breakthrough or Breakout? I wow. guess that's, that's, uh, that, that's the story of my life.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. You have gone through that breakthrough moments throughout your career, you know, whether going from uh, washing jeepneys and taxi cabs to topping the bar to joining one of the top law firms to joining MVP and the PLDT group and what you are achieving now in Miralco. So kudos to you, Ray, and uh, your entire team at Miralco. Thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your very inspiring story with us. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, Malik. And uh, it's as you know, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
1: Hi, guys, this is Malik again. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ray Espinosa. If you would like to listen to more of these inspiring conversations with global leaders, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.